Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, host David Bell will speak with Maria Parker, author of Do Tough and CEO of Cruise Bike. This episode is part four of the Empathy series, and their topic is How can we put ourselves into someone else's shoes when we cannot fully grasp their life experience? David and Maria speak about her new book that combines cycling, empathy, and perseverance. Maria's new book, Do Tough, What Race Across America and My Sister's Brain Cancer Taught Me About Endurance and How to Do Hard Things, is available at booksellers everywhere. Do Tough is the heart-pumping story of Maria Parker's unlikely win of the 2013 Race Across America. What sets Do Tough apart is the way Parker intertwines the themes of hope, resilience, and perseverance with the story of her sister Jenny's illness and the epic race. The result is a book that is both encouraging and resonant, offering readers a message of hope and a roadmap for dealing with the challenges that life can throw our way. We'll play our calendar at the midpoint of the hour. Please stay tuned to hear an hour about Maria Parker, including the founding of Cruise Bike, the world's top recumbent road bicycle company. Maria and David will share road-tested insights on habit formation, team building, leadership, and visualization. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, this is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We're currently in the middle of our empathy series, which we began with Dr. Nicole Price, the author of Spark the Heart. Along the way, we talked with retired police officer Kim Shaw Ellis, who said the following. I don't have to know your journey or to walk in your shoes to see that your souls are worn. Mine are too. It doesn't mean that I've experienced the same experiences you've had, but I've experienced things that have, have caused me to know what it feels like to be fearful, that, that I know what it feels like to hurt or be lonely or be sad or, or to lose someone. I know those feelings, and I can relate to you that way because we're human. I can see you there because we're human. I can connect with you that way because we're human. Today, I want to explore this concept a little more, and I also want to understand what moves us from empathy to action. To help us with the discussion, I've asked Maria Parker to join us. She's the author of Do Tough. Maria is also the CEO of Cruise Bike, and she is the co-host of Champions Mojo, a podcast where she talks with champions, coaches, and experts about topics that are interesting and important to masters swimmers or anyone that wants to be inspired. Maria, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, David. I appreciate it. If we could first talk about your entree into athletics, which I understood took place a little bit later in life. Sure. I grew up in a big family. The, there were six of us. I was a middle child and, you know, in a big family there, everybody sort of chooses their, their role. And I was not the athlete. <laughs> so I was kind of a bookish person. And, um, as I, as I went through grade school, I, you know, I was just, I, I think you might call me low muscle tone. I just never did anything physical. And so, uh, I had a, I, at one point I had a teacher, a PE teacher who, who referred to me as a jelly bean in front of the class. And I remember just being just mortified by that, but I didn't do much about it. But 
um, time went by and um, uh, I got married and, you know, went to school, got married, had some kids. And uh, I just felt really, um, I loved, I had four children. I loved staying, I, I stayed home and took care of them. I love that, but I was bored and I was, I felt uh, squishy and soft in my brain and in my body. So um, I decided to try to start running. So I'd, I'd, I'd kind of done some jogging off and on, but I started running seriously. Uh, I'd get up early in the morning before my husband left for work and, and, and you know, just do feel like I had done something before I, I began the rest of my day. And that led into, that led into marathons essentially, and then triathlons. I remember not really thinking of myself as, you know, I was just a jogger or a runner. And I, uh, my sister-in-law, who's a division one, she was a division one swim coach and just an athlete her whole life. She said to me one day, you know, Maria, you're an athlete. And I just really had a hard time, you know, wrapping my mind around that. And I thought, you know, she said, you, you exercise every day, you watch what you eat, you think about your, you know, you, you enter these athletic uh, events, you know, you're, you're an athlete. So I, so I started calling myself an, an adult onset athlete or that I came down with adult onset athletics. <laughs> That's a great term. You know, you, in your book, uh, which I really, really enjoyed, you talk about that caring for your family was spiritually and psychologically tough, but as you mentioned here, you could feel your brain and body getting softer. And, and I, and as I thought about that, I was wondering about how reaching our potential, whatever that is, seems to require being spiritually tough, being psychologically tough, but also mentally tough and physically tough. Oh, absolutely. And and sometimes in your life, I think you are able to work on one aspect more than the other, but all those things are important. For, for me, my spirituality developed, I was, I grew up in a cat, big Catholic family. So going to mass and being, you know, part of that was always sort of part of our DNA as a family, but, you know, just like anybody else as a young adult, I didn't really pursue that. As a young adult, you feel like you've got it all. <laughs> so I was no different than anybody else. And then when I had kids that just the really failing in, in so many ways, losing my temper and just not, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to be as a mother and I failed all the time. And that sort of just brought me to my knees, uh, essentially, <laughs> and, and, and made, um, and brought spirituality back into my, into my life. Also my sister, Jenny, who I was very close with growing up, she's 10 months older than I am. So we were, I guess you call us Irish twins. I was very, very close to her. I had always been very close to her. And she was just, she, where I was able to succeed in many areas of life, Jenny failed at everything. <laughs> and she was just uh, very emotional, had a hard time with uh, self-regulation, but she met Jesus essentially again in college and and she developed this, this this spirituality that I came to really admire. And so she was part of my, when I became a parent and was frustrated, she was sort of part of my learning about growing spiritually. So I had my sister-in-law who really taught me about growing athletically and my sister who, who led me uh, in the spiritual path. And of course, I was working on all the other things. I'm naturally kind of a perseverant person. So, you know, running was a perfect sport for me and, and endurance athletics were perfect for me. So in, in the fall of 2012, and at this point you've adult onset athletics has happened. Uh, yes. You're, you're way yes. into it. Yeah. But, but in the fall of 2012, your sister receives a diagnosis. And if you could briefly talk about that. Yeah, I was uh, at this at that point from an athletic perspective, I was I'd done running and then running, you know, often leads to triathloning, which did. And then the triathloning led into cycling, which was really it turned out I was pretty good at cycling, especially endurance cycling. And then 
one thing led to another and um, my husband and I ended up buying this bicycle company called Cruise Bike. So I was really into riding these recumbent bikes, this cruise bike. So I was doing all that, lots of it, lots, you know, trying to set endurance records. And Jenny and I talked all the time and she was complaining. Uh, our kids at this point were growing, but she had five children. I had four and they were roughly the same ages. And uh, we, we talked all the time. And But she she was starting to experience these really awful headaches and also had trouble, like she couldn't, we would meet frequently for lunch. We lived three hours away and we would try to meet at this place that was an hour and a half from each of us. And she, she said, I just can't, I can't drive anymore. I don't know. I can't, I just don't have the energy. And so she's had these headaches and, and this sort of loss of motivation and energy. And she went to the doctor and I don't know why he did this because this is, it seems to me kind of rare. I think anybody else would have diagnosed her with depression and put her on a, on a pill, but he, he got an MRI for her. The MRI showed this just enormous tumor. Um, I showed a picture of it in the book. You know, you, you see the, you know, anybody didn't take a radiologist to look at that and know that something really horrible was happening in her brain. And so she, she was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforme. People call it GBM. It's a very deadly form of brain cancer. She was only 51 and was just devastated because my, my uncle had died of, of the same thing, even though there's not supposed to be a genetic component. He died of that, that disease several years earlier. And I, I knew there was I knew I was going to lose her. I, I, I can't tell you probably the worst moment of my life, you know, looking over Jim's shoulder. Jim is a radiologist, my husband. And so he was, he was reading the study from his home computer and looking over his shoulder and, you know, just having him, you know, say this, I said, you know, tell me that's not a tumor. He said, no, this is, this is very bad. This is a, this is a large five centimeter mass. This is very bad. So I, pretty much fell apart. It was, you know, I just couldn't imagine my life. I had my, my future plan was to spend a lot of time with Jenny. After our kids grew up, we would, we were going to travel the world together. We had a lot of the same interests. I mean, just, just, she was just such an important part of my life and I couldn't imagine losing her. So that was, that was a very, very dark time. And I want to talk about then your reaction to it. And what I mean by that is in the book, you describe this pain, certainly, and, and someone who's almost a twin sister. I mean, I know you said Irish. Yeah. yeah what is yeah. it called? Irish twins. But Irish twins. Yeah. I think you said the family, there were five girls born in less than five yeah. years and a boy yeah. who arrived a couple years later. So you yeah, had a, yeah. a small a football team, essentially. Yeah. Right, right off the yeah. Bat. Oh, it wasn't but, that pretty. <laughs> but, but 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 in addition to the, the pain, you phrase you use in the book is you seethed, you seethed with fury and impotence. You yeah. desperately needed to fight back to do something physically and emotionally strenuous and significant to battle for Jenny. And then you bring up concepts, chosen versus unchosen suffering. And I wonder if you could briefly talk to us about that. Sure. that That's not an original concept, but I, I learned about it and I, I thought, so I understood chosen suffering. So chosen suffering is when you go out there and you work out really hard and you make yourself hurt. You know, when you ride right at the edge of your comfort level or you swim or you run or you lift weights, you know, anybody who's done any sort of physical sport or, or athletics understands this kind of chosen suffering. Unchosen suffering is the stuff that happens to you that you can't control or, or happens to somebody that you love that, that you, you, you can't control, that you have no, you know, that just happens to you. Usually it happens very suddenly. I was so frustrated and angry 
at, about Jenny's diagnosis that I wanted, you know, I wanted to do something. And I, and I really, the, the thing about chosen versus unchosen suffering is I, I think in this, the book, the whole book is, the, is based on the premise that what you learn when you choose suffering is really helpful for when unchosen suffering happens to you or somebody that you love. And so, and so that's, you know, that's what the, the book is, is the stories of chosen, you know, the skills that you learn basically in chosen suffering that you can apply to unchosen suffering or, or not. I mean, you can basically, you know, people who have bad things happen to them, do these things automatically, whether they're athletes or not. I also have this sort of, I guess it's, it's, it's a religious belief that if I choose to suffer, I can, that that is, that that suffering has meaning in the universe, that it can, that it's, it's doing some good somewhere else. And so I wanted to do something, as I said, in the book that you read, you know, that I wanted to do something. Jenny's, Jenny had to deal with all the hardship of brain cancer and her family had to deal with just, just all the horrid, horrid things that brain cancer is. And I could sort of help, but I, but I wanted to do something more. I mean, I wanted to, I, I don't, I wanted, I, the, the way I think about it is when I was pedaling my bike, I was grinding up her brain cancer cells. I was fighting the devil that was, you know, in her head. So I, I pushed my body in a way that I felt like I was somehow helping her. Um, and, and, and that was good for me. <laughs> I don't know if it was in the end, if it was good for her or not, but it was good. Well, but, but one thing, and we'll talk about it is you were raising money during a bike yes. ride and we'll talk about the chosen suffering, which is a, a ride across uh, America which right. I will tell you, I did ride just full disclosure, my cruise bike to the office today uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm, where I'm interviewing you from. And in a 30 mile ride, uh, um, you know, I was thinking about you and riding 30 miles was enough and you riding yeah. across the country that, that truly defines suffering to me. But I was struggling with the concept and I think I have a potential answer here, but I, I want to hear from you. In addition to a spiritual aspect that your suffering somehow could relieve other suffering. What else would it do? Meaning how does writing across the country, and we'll talk about that, help Jenny's cancer? Yeah. Uh, well, I think if you're, if, if you're out there doing something hard and especially if you're publicizing it and I was out there already kind of in the, in the ultra cycling world, I, I had made a name for myself doing some ultra cycling events, then you can use whatever, you know, platform you have to bring attention to the suffering that's out there. And, and I, I just, I was just looking on LinkedIn and I noticed that there's a swimmer whose father died of pancreatic cancer and she's doing the same thing. You know, she's, she's, she's creating, she's raising money for research. And so I, you know, I, for me that doing something hard, like if I could have gone in there and Jenny, well, there's, there are several things I would have done. If I could have traded places with Jenny, I would have, I mean, I, I felt like I had, like I somehow I, you know, I wanted to trade places with her, but I, I, you know, I couldn't do that. And, but I could, I could make a ruckus as Seth Godin would say. And I could, I could say, Hey, this is ridiculous that there's no, that this, this disease has, you know, been around forever and they've known about it forever and there's no new treatments. Everybody's still dying at 18 months. And I could use the, the energy from, you know, that, that anger and, and raise, and raise money. And I mean, I think a lot of people, that's a natural thing that people do and it makes, and it 
and it works. I know that with breast cancer, my husband's a radiologist and his, his, um, his expertise is in breast imaging. And so I'm very familiar with, with breast cancer and so many, many millions and billions of dollars have been raised for breast cancer, that breast cancer is no longer a death sentence. And that's because somebody got out there and said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm going to raise money. And, and, um, the Susan G. Cohen uh, Foundation has just raised billions, and a lot of it through walking. And and again, these these physical, these physical things seem to be a great way to, to raise money and to use up the energy that you have that that comes from the impotence of watching somebody that, watching people suffer or seeing injustice. So, and I was trying to to intellectualize it just because I can't help myself. And I I was thinking uh, along the lines of empathy that your empathy for Jenny allowed you to take on an experience suffering. Again, it may not have been brain cancer and that actual feeling, but but certainly suffering at the loss and that your reaction to that was frustration, anger, a desire to fight. So you've converted it now to frustration and anger and, and a desire to do something. And then you take that and you use that as a motivation for raising money to fight the very thing that you were trying to uh, relieve Jenny of. And so you're able to convert suffering, Jenny's suffering in that moment into something beautiful that could potentially help Jenny, or it but certainly may help other families who have to face the same situation many years down the road. I think so. I, I, I yeah, I, thank you. That's, that was really beautifully put. I think it gave, I mean, my experience during the race across America, which we'll talk about, I know, um, was that people reached out to me and talked to me about, the hope that they felt when they saw what I was, what we, my team and I were doing and what we continue to do to raise money that they felt like, ah, you know, there's hope. And, and that's all you've got, <laughs> you know, you, it's just, just hope. And so, um, yeah, it, to, to know that I was encouraging, you know, anyone who was suffering was, was also just was so terrific. So let's talk about chosen suffering. And again, 30 miles for me is chosen suffering, but you, <laughs> so, but I, it, I think that pales and that's like a, it's like two hours maybe at most of maybe of, of the suffering that you took on with the ride across America. Could you briefly talk about the mileage, how long it takes just generally and kind of what you need to physically do it? Yeah. So race across America is a, I think it's called uh, the outside magazine once called it like the world's toughest race. I'm, nowadays, there's there's so many ways that you can challenge yourself and do tough stuff. But Race Across America is pretty tough. It's it's uh it's known as RAM R A A M, and you start in Oceanside, California, near San Diego, and you finish in Annapolis, Maryland. It's three thousand miles across the country. It takes the same route every year, um, and basically, it's it's a one stage race. So what makes it different than like the Tour de France or whatever is that if you're sleeping or if you're off the bike, you're not you're not pedaling, you're not moving forward. The first person who gets to Annapolis wins. So what people end up doing is riding, you know, 20, 23 hours at a time, sometimes more, 48 hours before stopping to rest. Um, so the, the thing that makes it in addition to, you know, the fact that it's 3000 miles and you're going over three mountain ranges and, you know, it's, you're out exposed in the, in the weather for, you know, 10 or 11 days, is that you you also kind of have a little madness from from sleep deprivation because you really try you know not to sleep too much uh, again because if you're sleeping you're not moving forward so i mean for me that was the hardest part i thought i could manage it <laughs> you know i had a lot of pride and hutz going into it because i had you know i'd raised 
children, I'd been awake at night with kids and, you know, I, I knew what sleep deprivation felt like, but I didn't know what sleep deprivation of that magnitude felt like. And you pretty much become, you know, just, you, you lose, <laughs> you lose who you are. And then your team becomes really important because they're managing you and they're helping you know when you have to stop and when you got to eat. And because you, you know, you just, you just lose a lot of your frontal uh, ability to control your, you know, your emotions and stuff. So anyway, yeah, it's just, it's just really tough. And, um, how many days was yeah. it? How many days it did it take me, you to finish it? It took me 11 days and set, I think I actually finished in 11 days, 21 hours, but because we had a, a wreck in the middle, um, they credited me three hours. So I think my official time is something like 11 days and, and 18 hours. And that's to go from California, the the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, essentially. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, one, one of the wonderful things about your book that certainly caught my attention was I've not never considered myself an athlete, which... For your book, maybe I should start considering myself an yes. athlete, but we'll go yes. we'll go somewhere else with that. But but I never thought of athletics as some type of model for living, and and particularly in mindfulness, practicing kind of in a zone of discomfort, yes, and and being able to act towards your goals, kind of an act consistent with your values, but staying centered in the midst of turmoil. It, it kind of may serve to be the best life lessons ever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, athletics again, you know, teach it. It's a model for for you know, life, if you're going to move forward and become a better person and, and make this world a better place, you, you have to lean into that. What did you call it? The zone of proximal development. Zone of proximal. You have to lean into that. I mean, that means you're getting out of your comfort zone. And we just interviewed a, um, um, Jamie Smojo, we just interviewed a woman who said, if you're green, you're growing. And if you're ripe, you're rotting. And I thought that's, that's so true. At 60, I can easily just be ripe. I mean, I've done a lot of great stuff. Uh, and you know i can just sit here but if i if i don't lean into new things and lean, basically i i think of this concept all the time leaning into discomfort you know and it's easy to even get out of the habit for me you know i've done tons of great things you know tons of hard things and and for me it's easy to just get out of the habit of it and if you if you do that then you're not you're not growing as a person and you're not helping the world you know because usually if you're out there you know, doing something that's hard or new or, or brings you to your limits, you're also bringing the people around you up and you're, you're, you're doing something that's making the world a better place. So we're not put here to just sit around and be ripe, you know, and smile We're we're here, no matter, I think, no matter our age. And my parents certainly exemplify this for me. They're always out there. My dad's 93 and my mom's 87 and they're always out there helping people. You know, they're always, and they're always pressed, you know, pushing themselves as much as they can, you know, at their age. So yeah, I love that, that idea of, of using, you know, you know, of leaning into discomfort in every area of your life, whether it's spiritual or physical or mental, um, you know, professional, you know, what can I do, you know, today for cruise bike, you know, that's a little bit uncomfortable that, you know, that I don't know what I'm doing really, but that might make that might, that might help the business succeed and then bring more bicycles to people who need them. Our guest today is Maria Parker. She's the author of Do Tough, What Race Across America and My Sister's Brain Cancer Taught Me About Endurance and How to Do Hard Things. In the first half hour, we talked to Maria about a conceptual framework in which to understand moving from empathy to action. In the second half hour, we'll continue our discussion and also learn about practical steps we can take. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. 
hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Do you have feedback about the shows you hear on KKFI? The KKFI Listener Survey is the way to let us know. You can go online to kkfi.org slash survey and give us your thoughts on our programming. The deadline for Jackson County homeowners to appeal reassessments has been extended to July 31. Some homeowners have seen their assessments double, reportedly forcing some to sell. Jackson County has an automated online appeal filing system or email board of equalization at jacksongov.org or call 816-881-3309. This message is a public service of KKFI. Here's a calendar for the week of July 24th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For information about Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense meetings this week, you can go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. You can be involved. Monday, July 24th, 1.30, bond reduction hearing for Sean Tonkin at Division 29 of the 16th Circuit Court of Jackson County, Missouri, in the Albert Reader Community Justice Complex, 1315 Locust Street, 2nd Floor, Kansas City, Missouri. Please see Latara Smith Carnes' Facebook Live event posted on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page with regards to the prosecution of the July 4, 2023 stabbing of Mr. John Rones Jr. Tuesday, July 25th at noon, you can plan to join Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty in Jefferson City, Missouri to urge Governor Parson to grant clemency for hashtag Johnny Johnson. They'll gather at the Missouri State Capitol Rotunda, 201 West Capitol Avenue, Jefferson City, Missouri. For carpooling and more info, you can go to madpmo.org. Hashtag Killing Tuesday. Thursday, July 27th, Integrated Voter Engagement Training with More Square is a strategy that helps build an organization's capacity to engage historically underrepresented populations. Session 4, Canvassing, will introduce participants to canvassing as an approach to build relationships and trust with voters and potential voters. These conversations surface hopes and dreams alongside community challenges, with the goal of changing hearts and motivating people to participate. Contact Marcus at Moore Square if interested in registering. Thursday, July 27th at 7 p.m., the Greater Kansas City Women's Political Caucus July Membership Meeting to bring in Executive Director of the newly rebranded Abortion Action Missouri, Mallory Schwartz, she, her, to chat about what the heck is going on. You can register through Eventbrite to ensure that you receive a Zoom link for the virtual meeting. 
Saturday, July 29th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Penny Mills Community Empowerment Event will be in Spring Valley Park, East 28th Street and Spring Valley Drive, Kansas City, Missouri. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. David Bell speaking with Maria Parker. This is David Bell on Jaws of Justice 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Maria Parker. She is the author of Do Tough. In the first half hour, we talked about empathy and how empathy is converted into something that can bring beauty to the world, particularly in the face of so much suffering. In this hour, we're going to talk about what motivates that and some steps that Maria has put in her book. We were talking at break. I was biking down today. My legs were starting to hurt and I was, pedal was going around and I was about to go into the cycle where you're pushing. And I was like, all right, why am I doing this? Not only why, not only why, I guess why would be, it gets me to better mental state. It mm-hmm. certainly helps me physically. I want to live a while, but but what is the thing inside of me that I can feed on to get me to the next spot? Mm-hmm. Meaning I have these goals, these ideas, whatever. What is it within me that that gets me there? Sure. I you know, I think throughout our day we have we always have a choice of you know, of or basically resting, coasting, <laughs> or pedaling, right? And I don't think anybody can pedal all the time and and rest is is important. And but the the question is, you know, to perform at our best, how you know, how you know, how do we stay near that line? And, you know, I I think there there's lots of answers to that question. You know, one is you have to know like, you know, why am I doing this? You know, what you have to be really clear on like, you know, why did I choose to ride my bike today? And, you know, what am I hoping to get out of it? What's the long, you know, the long game and the short game? I'm, I'm out here riding, you know, I don't really want to keep pushing, but if I keep pushing, I know, you know, I'm going to improve my, you know, cardiovascular health or whatever, you know, you have to kind of know, you know, why you're doing it. So I think that's really important. And then I think the other thing that I, to me, maybe this is like the most important lesson that I've ever learned for doing tough and that is don't try to do it all at once. Like, so for instance, in the case of your example of pedaling to work, it's like, you know, you don't have to think about pushing that pedal hard for the next hour. All you really have to do is get through the next pedal stroke, <laughs> you know, and then you can make a new decision at, for the next pedal stroke, whether you're going to keep pushing. And, you know, and I think so, you know, there's that old, you know, adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant, you know, one, one bite at a time. But, but the point is the, the bite has to be really small. And, and I think for me, if I've, if I've ever succeeded at anything, like I want to cure brain cancer, that's a big elephant. I mean, that is a big elephant and I can get really discouraged and I can want to give up. But, but if I just think, okay, I'm just going to do, you know, a little, just one little, I'm going to do a ride and I'm going to put a little, throw up a Facebook fundraiser for my birthday or whatever. You know, I'm going to raise a hundred dollars or $200 or five, you know, you just put, keep putting all that together, you know, and, and, and eventually you get there. And it's the same things for surviving hard things. I mean, I, 
Jenny and I talked about this all the time. It's like, if you look ahead at what's coming, you know, you just get overwhelmed and want to, you know, curl up in a fetal ball. But, but, but if you just say, you know what, all I got to do is do the next right thing, put the next foot forward. I think that's, that's for me really, really helpful knowing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. You know, what's, what's the end game here. And, but you don't think about that too much. You mostly think about, okay, you know, I'm just going to get to this next, like for, for you riding the bike, you know, you've, probably ridden this course, you know, many times. And so maybe you're just going to push it to the next stoplight or whatever it is, you know, you're just going to, and then you make a new decision after that, maybe I'll take it easy for a stoplight you know, or whatever it is. That's, that's how I do it. I make, I make those decisions all the time. It's like, I'm going to just do this little segment just, and just for today. And then I'll make a new decision. And you bring up in the book, a concept that your sister-in-law Kelly taught you called penny in the jar. Yes. And yes. it's, it's doing, as you indicated, it's, it's the next doable right thing. It's right, not even the right, right next right thing. It's the next right. What can I do right now uh, that right. the next doable right thing that moves me in the direction? I, I would assume I would assume when, when you got the diagnosis, that feeling, the internal feelings that you were going through, it would almost it, when you think about it in its entirety it would be so overwhelming that you would almost be um, immobile with fear or, or yeah. immobile with, uh, as you called it, impotence. Like you can't yeah. what what I can't do anything here. Right. Right. I would see. But yet what you've indicated here is yes, you can do something and you need to pick the next doable right thing. And right. you need to ultimately have a goal to, to pursue. Yeah. There's the big, the, the, the 30,000 foot view. And then there's the, the, 10 foot view. And those are equally important. And, and, you know, I I would say that I'm not that great at the 30,000 foot view. I need people around me to help me, you know, with the big, with the long haul. I mean, and that definitely happened when I was so angry. Jim was the one who came to me and said, Hey, let's do Ram. You can raise money for brain cancer research. That will be something really good. You know, that you can, I was like, okay, yeah, (laughs) good plan. Okay. (laughs) You know, now, now what's the next thing? And so I think, I think, and, and this kind of, I talk about this in the book too, you need a team of people around you to help you to deal with whatever it is with whether it's your anger or your or your impotence or 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 your drive that's sort of undirected you know you need you need a team and i have i'm so lucky to have really really good people around me so yeah so i think but i think what happens to a lot of i think more often people get overwhelmed because the finish line seems so far away and there's so many obstacles between you and the finish line and so those are the people i would speak to it's like you know and i've I've known depressed people and they can't get out of bed, but, you know, maybe one day, you know, they can turn around and sit up and that's better. And then they can lie back down, you know? So you just, you know, remembering that you're, that you just have to do the next thing, you know, and I love this concept of the penny in the jar and, you know, you alluded to it. So if it's a, to describe it, it's a big empty jar, imagine a big gallon jug, and, you know, you put one penny in, it doesn't, it doesn't really make that much difference. But if you keep putting the pennies in over a long period of time, you're eventually going to fill that jar up with pennies. You can't really spend a lot of time thinking about the full jar of pennies, but you can just keep working every day. I'm throwing that penny in or every moment, you know, and I, I think that that applies to just, you know, some days we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we don't, you know, feel like doing what we got to do. But, you know, we just put the penny in the jar, remind ourselves, I'm just going to put the penny in the jar. It may not be a nice shiny penny today, (laughs) but it's going to be, and maybe it's just one penny and not 10 pennies, but I'm just going to do one little thing to move me towards, towards the, the goal. Well, and and one of the things that we've talked about on a number of of past shows, certainly we deal with a lot of, a lot of difficult issues. And uh, uh, while we, we all hope to develop empathy, certainly there's always of like, well, I can't do anything, right? And there's nothing I can do about it, whatever, but certainly all of us can put a penny in a jar, right? That's or all right. of us can pick that. 
the, the next doable thing. And I think one of the things you mentioned in your book, which I really liked is that, you know, you said, I want to be intentional about how I live. And, and I like that. I want my actions to be, I want to be intentional about them so that I act consistent with my values, whatever they are. And, and I think part of that, what you've indicated here is you have to have some goal. And I, I will say this, my, I know my mom will be listening. She said to a ship without direction, no wind is a good wind. That's right. Right. And I'm like, well, I, right. you know what I mean? I didn't believe her for 50 years, but mom, I believe <laughs> it now. But, but, but for you and talking about the book, you certainly put forward a, uh, uh, that you have to have these goals, whether they're short-term, yeah. midterm or long-term goals. Right, and I right. wonder if how often do you spend doing that reflecting in yeah. I mean, I'm a definitely a person, an action person, you know, I am, I'm more, I'd like to move. And, uh, and so I, I need people around me, uh, to remind me to, to move in the right direction and not just move. <laughs> and so reflection is really, really important for that. And again, Kelly, my sister-in-law has been a huge influence on me in, in that direction. She, annually and semi-annually creates vision boards for herself and does a lot of reflecting. And I've gotten a lot better at that. Just, just thinking at the end of the day, okay, you know, what, you know, what went well today? What, you know, how did I move forward? And then, you know, and then in the beginning of the day, you know, what, it's easy for me to, to just move, as I said, or even to set little goals and move, but not to, but maybe not necessarily to, for those things to, to move me the way that I want to go. So it's important quarterly annually to stop and say, you know, you know, what did you do this year? And I use, I talk about it in the book, but I, I use my Google calendar. I look back over it because I, I don't look back. I mean, I'm not a person who looks back. It's just, I'm not the way, but, but if I, if I, at the end of the year, if I look back at my Google calendar and I see what I've done, who I've been with, you know, all my appointments and, and, I, and I ask myself, you know, is this what I want to be doing next year? <laughs> is this, have I moved forward? You know, are, you know, have I met the goals that I set at the beginning of next year? And so it's real important for a person like me because because I like to just move and do. And I think a lot of people who are um, who are effective and who you know people will call on me and I'll just say yes, 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 yes. And 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 the reflection piece is a reminder. Wait, no, I don't want to just keep moving or keep saying yes. I want to move in the direction that will take me to where I'm, where I believe God has me going, rather than just um, a tree in the wind, you know, moving in. So. Um, yeah. So that's the reflection is really important. Well, it's, you're going to be moving in some direction, no matter what. So you might as well move in the direction you, you might as well in the, in the direction you want to move. Right. And people are put together differently. Some people have a hard time moving and, you know, and they're more reflective. And so the, they, those people need to just, you know, kind of get started. But for people like me, you know, where I'm always moving, I want to make sure I'm moving in the, in the right direction. You know, everybody knows their, their strengths and their weaknesses. You also talk in the book about habits as a kind of a, as vital here, and 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 I think certainly in situations where there's there's going to be a significant amount of discord or, or or crisis, habits can be really important. Yeah, I I love this concept of habits because habits. What's really exhausting is making decisions <laughs> and saying, okay, am I going to work out today or not? Or am I going to eat right today or not? Or am I going to, um, you know, am I going to go to work today or not? Am I going to brush my teeth today or not? If you have to make that, those decisions all the time, it's exhausting. And you know, you're just, you're going to be worn out mentally. So habits take all that tired decision-making and just throw it away because you just do it automatically. For me, I mean, for many, many years, I get up, I pray, and I work out. That is, you know, I don't have to decide to do it. I don't have to say, oh, am I going to, you know, am I going to work out today? Nope. It's just part of who I am, like brushing my teeth. And so, you know, 
so creating a habit is, is very freeing is what I would say. A lot of people think, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's exhausting or whatever. No, it's very freeing because now after I've done the things that I know that I'm going to do, because I'm, you know, I, in the morning, that's what I do. Then the rest of the day, you know, is open for me (laughs) to do other things that, but that goes down to, you know, to, you know, breaking bad habits and also creating new ones. Like I want to be the kind of person who is very complimentary of my husband. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a new habit I'm working on. It's like, <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to, I want to remind him because this is important to him. I want to remind him how important he is to me and all the good that I think he's doing in my life and in the world. I also want to break a habit of cursing, which, you know, once I really am intentional about those for a few months, then it's automatic. I don't have to think about it. It's just part of who I am. So I, I love the idea of habits because it's, 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 it's basically weaving new things into who you are. And so you don't have to think about that. You know, people, you know, you know, like a person that shows up on time, that's at your work, that, you know, has always got a friendly, you know, smile. That's not just his personality. That's the habit that he's created. You know, he's created this habit of showing up on time, working hard, being kind to other people. You know, so I, you know, I love, I love that idea. It's like, you can't just say, well, it's just who I am. I, you know, I don't have any control over my cursing or whatever. No, that's not true. I can become the kind of person who never says, you know, those bad words. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other things that you brought up in your book that I I try to incorporate certainly myself, and I'm going to incorporate some of the things that I learned from you is, is mindfulness and, and staying present. You know, as I'm thinking about um, imagining uh, mindfulness w- with regard to cycling uh, mm-hmm. and the and the race across America. And uh, by the way, I apologize. I think I've been calling it Ride Across America, which it's all right. is it's okay. suffering across America. It should be called <laughs> Sam is what it's called. But, <laughs> but there's a the need to stay in the moment, right. not worrying about the hill that's coming up a long ways from now, but worrying right, about the right. next pedal stroke. Right. I have to imagine that also came into play with, with being with Jenny. Yeah, right. very, very much. And yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And I think this is hopefully this, anybody who's going through something hard right now will hear this and 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 be encouraged. We, when we know, especially if we're, if we're suffering with an illness or something, you know, and we know what's ahead, you know, surgery or, or, or chemotherapy or, or whatever, whatever it is, or, or, or we don't know, but we're scared. Like for instance, as a parent, you can think, oh my gosh, when the kids get to be teenagers, it's going to be awful or whatever. You can be fearful of what that's, what's out there in the world. It's not helpful at all. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to know that's out there. I'm not saying you don't have to prepare. And I think in, in your best moments, you do helicopter up, you prepare for, for the future, but in 95% of your day, should just be thinking about, you know, being in your moment and enjoying your moment with Jenny. We talked a lot about, you know, just the gifts of cancer, you know, just the, you know, how we got to spend time together, how so many people took the opportunity to tell Jenny that they loved her and what an impact she'd had on their lives, how beautiful that was. And yes, you know, can't, uh, surgery, for instance, in the beginning, you know, surgery was coming, but we were just going to try to enjoy every moment, you know, of every day you know, until the surgery. And then after the surgery, there was, you know, all the treatments and so forth that some of them are, were difficult and painful. And we would, we talked a lot about just being, you know, being here and, and finding the good stuff in the moment. Lots of times there's, there's not much good to find. And again, I would say if, if that's the case, if you're in a spot where you can't, you can't think of anything good, then, then you need, you need to really reach out for help and, and ask somebody, you know, help me, help me see something here because there's almost always grace. I have found that in any awful moment, anything awful that's happened to me, anything 
difficult or, or has happened to friends or family there. If you look around, there's something beautiful. There's something funny. There's something silly. There's something. And you latch onto that. And that's where you live in that, in that special, you know, place. And I think God provides those for us, but if you can't, then you find somebody who can help you <laughs> with that because, you know, sometimes you just, you're drowning and you just need to cry out, help, help. One of the things that you said in your book is that faith gives us meaning for suffering. I guess faith to a certain extent, and, and I don't consider myself religious, but certainly spiritual, I, I guess would be the, yeah. the phrase, that faith is the idea, at least to me, that there's something more than the suffering that's going on right now. There's something much bigger. And in that much bigger space, yeah. there is things of beauty there. There's certainly yeah. suffering there. We've done what we can do about it, but there right. are so many other things. Is that is that how you... Is that how you're viewing it? Is that is that what's yeah, presented in the I mean, book? meaning. What you're talking about is meaning, yes. And there's like we may not ever know it. <laughs> like we may never understand, you know, why did this happen or why is this happening to me or whatever. But I do believe and I think faith gives you that sense of okay, there's it isn't just, you know, what it was the, that old thing that people used to have on their t-shirts, you know, um, life is short and then you die, <laughs> you know, right, basically, right, right, you know, right. just like, um, no, no, I don't, I don't, I believe that there is a greater meaning in the universe. You know, I believe in a personal God, but whatever, you know, your spirituality, you know, have hanging on to a, this concept that there's more, there's more, you know, there must be more because life, you know, there's, there's beauty, <laughs> there's beauty, there's relationships, there's order. There must be more than just, you know, the hard things and the difficult things. I mean, we can, and, and, and if we look at those things, I mean, right now, you know, 2023, there's a lot of things to be afraid of. There's a lot of things to be, to feel bad about. And I have to remind myself of this all the time because the news is such a terrible place to, <laughs> to be, to listen to, you know, there, because, you know, it, it, nobody can look away from a train wreck. Every Everything's a train wreck. Everything's a train wreck. So, you, you know, so I'd say, hey, turn off the news and, you know, B, do look for for beauty. There is, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Good and beauty are everywhere. In your book, you know, and again, we're moving back to empathy. We're in this, this series on empathy right now. And yes, certainly just feeling what someone else feels, perhaps even being angry or frustrated with that pain may not be enough to satisfy one's values. I'm going to leave one's values to themselves. And it requires doing something. And you name that doing tough. And I wonder in the last few minutes, if we could understand what that means doing tough. Well, I, I wrote the book because not just, you know, my experience, uh, a lot of people ask me, well, how'd you get through Raymond? I think, well, I don't, you know, I don't really know. But then I started talking to, you know, everyone does tough. <laughs> and I mean, there's, I, and I started just sort of talking to people about their, you know, their own hard life experiences. And, you know, you know, people who they, they just get through things with a great attitude and, you know, they, they make the best of whatever it is that, that life throws them. So I guess for me, you know, talking about doing tough, is like, nobody gets through life without suffering. <laughs> we get chosen suffering. We, you know, we can choose suffering or, but more often everybody has to, has unchosen suffering. We all are going to experience pain, loss, betrayal, fear, and we're all going to get through that. And so, you know, how, for me, doing tough is like, how do you do that? And, and in a way that is, that is, that is graceful, that is, that is an eye towards helping those around you. That's, you know, that's, you know, what can I do with this awful situation and make something good of it? What can I do? And people do it all the time. I know so many people much tougher than I am right now, two very good friends, are, are suffering through some really significant, serious problems in their lives, and they're making good of them. They're making good of them. And so that's what doing tough is. 
And, and that's what I found from your book as, as we close for today. I, this, this person who's, who's writing or racing across America, who's truly suffering. I mean, the book, when you read about the, the minute by minute, what you're going through, in addition to the unexpected stuff you had to deal with, but what you were knew you were going to have to deal with was so much that you were able to convert, in my view, Jenny's suffering as you experienced it into something, you became like a generator. You were turning one form of energy into another form of injury into something to help uh, someone else. And I guess for me, as I pick, as, as I start con- thinking about the concept of doing tough in my own life, I feel that, that that's what comes of it. Usually you're given this challenge and you can help convert that suffering into something so much more beautiful. So well put. Thank you. That's beautiful. Maria, thank you so much for being here today. Your book is Do Tough, What Race Across America and My Sister's Brain Cancer Taught Me About Endurance and How to Do Hard Things. That is out right now on Kindle, I assume, anywhere you can get a book. Yeah, it's Kindle. So you can also get you can get on Amazon and paperback or Kindle. Yeah. A wonderful book. And then the second thing you're on is your podcast. And we have about a minute or so left, but if you could just briefly talk to us, uh, what is the podcast and where we might be able to find that as well? Sure. You can find, uh, it's called Champions Mojo and it's on all the places where podcasts are, Spotify and iTunes and everything like that. And that's a podcast I do with my sister-in-law. Uh, it's it's its main audience is uh, master swimmers, um, but it's we really just try to talk to people who are amazing um, and to have done amazing things. Some of them are ordinary people that you'd never hear about. Some of them you've heard about. Um, it's only about 20 minutes. We try to put out a new um, episode once a week, but it's called Champions Mojo. And if you're interested in and what makes a champion a champion, um, go ahead over there and listen, give us a listen. And one final thing, you're also part of a charity. And what is the name of that of that charity? Thank you. I really appreciate you calling that. It's called 3,000 Miles to a Cure. And it's been uh, 10 years since, been nine years since Jenny's death, but 10 years since we we launched the charity. And our goal is to, is to cure brain cancer by raising funds for brain cancer research. We're close to a million dollars that we've raised over the years. You can go to 3000milestoacure.com and you can see there's a movie about my RAM on that website. You can make a donation. Any little bit helps. And here's how I'd like to maybe end this is like sometimes we can be overwhelmed at all the hard things and all the bad things that are in the world. And lots of times people are asking us to do this or do that. I would say if you feel a little twinge in your heart, just go ahead over, go ahead and make a small donation. Do Give the guy on the street five bucks, you know, whatever it is, if you feel that in your heart, act on it. That's what makes us, that's what keeps us alive and makes us compassionate, good people. Don't ignore the little twinge in your heart when you feel motivated to give. The penny in the jar. The penny in the jar. Maria, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been a delight to talk with you. This is David Bell on Jaws of Justice 90.1 KKFI. It's the 420 Drug War News. Quote, most people do not really want freedom because freedom involves responsibility. And most people are frightened of responsibility. And that quote is from Sigmund Freud. And with that, I want to bring in our guest. He's an author. A businessman, drug reformer extraordinaire. He owns several uh, drug-related uh, organizations, a cannabis dispensary, a coca leaf and psychedelic shop, a drug testing facility. And, and I'm sure he's got his hands involved in many other um, endeavors. Uh, he's based up in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And with that, I want to welcome Mr. Dana Larson. Hello, Dana. Hey, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I, I am so proud to have you on this show. I consider you to be a hero, a patriot, a, a goddamn pioneer. And thank you, sir, for the work you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, and again, 
I, I, I mentioned uh, those businesses and then tell us a little bit about what well, a little of your history. How did you get to this point, sir? Well, I'm in my early 50s and I've been pushing for cannabis and drug policy reform one way or the other since I was a teenager. So it's been a long uh, career. Um, I've been involved in a lot of different things over the years, but my big projects right now are running the medicinal cannabis dispensary. We're one of the very few legacy old school cannabis dispensaries still left here in Canada and Vancouver. I also run the medicinal mushroom dispensary, which has only been a couple of years and we're providing not only psychedelic mushrooms, but LSD, DMT, Kratom, uh, a lot of other, and co coca leaf, like you mentioned, a lot of other uh, interesting plants and, and psychedelic medicines. I also run Get Your Drugs Tested at getyourdrugstested.com. That's a free service in Vancouver. Uh, and also by mail, really, for anybody in the world. It's mostly Canadians, but we accept samples anywhere. And if you bring us a sample of any uh, mm -hmm. drug or substance, we can analyze it with our spectrometer and tell you what's in it. And we've just uh, recently hit our 50,000th substance tested. I wow. believe we're the busiest uh, free drop-in uh, drug analysis center in the world. And um, and I'm very happy to help not only help people prevent overdoses and drug poisonings from finding fentanyl and things like that where they shouldn't be, but also just helping people have better drug experiences. Maybe they think they've got MDMA, but it really turns out to be MDA or something like that. It's not going to kill anybody, but certainly they're not going to have the experience they were looking for. So I do a lot of other things, but those are kind of our big three projects that I'm uh, involved in right now. I urge you to check out the most recent Cultural Baggage Show to hear the full discussion with Mr. Dana Larson about his uh, patriotism, his courage, his commitment up there in Canada. I am Dean at DrugTruth.net. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, 
Cowtown Conversations on Thursday and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale 